This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Well, before we get into our... Um, our message today, uh, since this is the last message in our current series, I want to talk about our next series coming up in September. It's going to be on the book of 1 Timothy. And so one of the things that Paul tells Timothy in that letter is fight the good fight. I'm reminded of something that John Piper once said. He said, the mark of a Christian is not flawlessness, we're never going to get to flawlessness until we're glorified in heaven. The mark of a Christian is a persevering fight. And so we have a supernatural enemy. We're going to talk about that in the message today. And sometimes the biggest enemy is the one inside of us, in our own flesh, our own indwelling sin that we're called to make war against. And so 1 Timothy is an incredibly encouraging book. It's written to a person, so it reads differently. It's very personally encouraging. There's just so much there about the Christian life, about the church. And so we're going to spend the fall in 1 Timothy, and then we'll break and we'll do a series for Christmas in December. Then we'll come back the first of the year and we'll have a, a whole different series on 2 Timothy at the beginning of the, of, of the year. So that's where we're going. And so you can be reading through verse, uh, 1 Timothy, read through it again and again. Let the themes begin to pop out at you, and we'll begin that journey through 1 Timothy next Sunday. Super excited about this series, Fight the Good Fight. Well, today we're going we're gonna to finish up our summer series, Communion with the Living God. We've been looking at different prayers of the Apostle Paul, and actually today we're going to look at a request for prayer that Paul makes in Romans chapter 15. So open your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the book of Romans. And we're talking here about the theme abandoned to God. Abandoned to God. Romans chapter 15. And we're going to look at verses 20 through 33 today. What does it mean to be abandoned to God? Take your copy of God's Word and, and let's pick it up here in Romans 15 and beginning with verse 20. The Apostle Paul says, My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. But now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you, 
when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Right now I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to them and their material needs. So when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. May the God of peace be with all of you. Amen. And so, Father, now as we, we dig into your, your word together, we, we pray that we would surrender to you. That, Lord, if we're holding anything back in, in our lives as believers, and, Lord, there, there are some in this room and watching this video who, who have not surrendered to you in the sense of, of turning to Jesus and trusting in him. But Lord, may, may we raise the white flag of surrender. Cease to be in rebellion against you. Stop holding back things in our lives that need to be given fully to you. Because being abandoned to you is the best place that we could possibly be. And so show us that now through your word and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This little book is really special to me. It was given to me by Gordon and Carrie Mae Hanna, who are with the Lord now. They were once a part of our church, and uh, they were dear friends of my parents, who were also with the Lord. And uh, when my father first became a Christian and became a part of this church family, uh, Gordon Hanna, along with uh, Jack Wills, were two of the guys that came alongside my dad and really discipled him. One of the things we just, we just want to see more and more at our church is that kind of culture of discipleship. People coming alongside uh, one another and, and helping them to, to grow in their, in their walk. And, and these guys, Gordon and Jack, came alongside my dad, uh, discipled him. They continued to be close friends of my parents. And so when I was 17 years old, uh, the Hannahs uh, gave me Oswald Chambers' devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. Now, at 17, I can guarantee you that when they gave me this book, that was the first day I had ever heard of Oswald, of Oswald Chambers. But his story is really unique. Uh, he was a chaplain to British Commonwealth troops in World War I, was stationed in Egypt. Many of the troops that he was ministering to were going to go off to, to fight in the Battle of Gallipoli, 
uh, and die there. And Chambers himself was going to die in 1917 at the age of, of 43. And when he died, he had no idea that any of his sermons or talks were going to ever be published, let alone, you know, bless millions of people. And so uh, My Utmost for His Highest is, a, is a, a book of devotions that was put together by his wife after his death. And, and basically what she did was she took her notes, notes that she had made on his talks and sermons and just got them together and that's what, that's what forms this classic devotional book. And it gets its title from one of the devotions in it where Chambers says this, shut out every other consideration and keep yourself before God for this one thing only, my utmost for his highest. I am determined to be absolutely and, and entirely for him and for him alone. Now, many of the devotions in my utmost for his highest have this theme, the theme of surrender, the theme of abandonment to God. And, and that's what we see here in this text in Romans 15. And I want us to see three ways in which the Apostle Paul's abandonment to God takes shape and what we are called to as well. First of all, he was abandoned to God's mission. And we see that in verses 20 and 21. Let's look at it together. Paul says, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. It is hard for us to conceive with all of the means of communication that we have available to us in the West that there are still millions and millions of people on earth who have never heard the name of Jesus. In fact, missiologists tell us that there are some 3,000 people groups on earth that are not only unreached with the gospel, but they're unengaged. That means that no one currently is working among them. At the International Mission Board, we have something called Project 3000, which you are a part of through your tithes and offerings. Project 3000 is a strategic initiative to get the gospel to these 3,000 people groups that have never heard the name of Jesus. And so I received an update just this week that some of our explorers, these are young 20-somethings, 20 that are being trained and deployed to go to these 3,000 people groups. And listen, they're, they're unreached and unengaged for a reason. That is because they live in incredibly difficult places to go and to live and incredibly dangerous places. But by God's grace, we are going. With your support, we are going. You know, the Southern Baptist Convention is, is not perfect. There's no perfect denomination. There's no perfect church. But I will say this about 
our family of churches, the SBC. We do believe the Bible and stand on the Bible, and we are serious about the Great Commission. There is no other denomination, there's no other family of churches that even comes close to being this strategic, to obeying the command of Christ, to get the gospel of Jesus to to the hardest people on earth to reach and to get it to every tribe and tongue, every people group on earth. And so as you give through our church, you are making a massive impact on reaching the people who are most in need of help, most in need of hearing the name of of Jesus. And this is the heart of God. You know, we saw last week in Acts 16 where Paul is in Troas and one night God gives him this, this vision of this man of Macedonia calling out to him. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. What kind of help did they need? They needed to hear about Jesus. We sung it earlier, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, so that everyone might know your name. And so the heart of God is that everyone would hear the good news of Jesus. And that was Paul's heart. And we see his heart here in verses 20 and 21, don't we? What, is it, what does he say? He, he, says, he says, my aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. You know, there are moments that stick with you and one moment that will forever stick with me occurred almost a year ago when I was in a country on the Arabian Peninsula and this is a place where just a few years ago you could not conceive of of what is happening now. This is is a, a country that would have been considered just the absolute darkest of the dark as far as spiritually, as far as the, the, the light of the gospel is concerned until very, very recently. And one night we were going through a, a town where, where the gospel has never gone. Never gone. There are plans for it to go to this town, but it had not gone there when I was there almost a year ago. And so we were driving through this town and we were praying for people as we were driving. And and there was a woman who who was uh, alongside of our car. And so we, we began to pray for this woman. And when we finished praying, the, the worker that we were with said, that's the first time in her life that anyone has ever prayed for her. Think about that. The heart of God is that all people would hear of him, that all peoples would know of Christ. And listen, Paul was captivated and and abandoned to this vision of Isaiah 52, 15, which he quotes here in verse 21. Those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard, who have never heard, will understand. Yes, Lord, let it be. Abandoned to God's mission. Second, abandoned to strengthening God's church. 
Let's look at verse 22. He says, that is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. Now, it was not that he did not want to come to them. He loved these people. He loved this church. He wanted to come and be with them. Turn back to Romans chapter 1, and we see this so clearly in the first chapter of Romans. Romans 1, and let's look at verses 9 through 13. He says to them, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often plan to come to you, but was, pre but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. So listen, Paul loved this church. He loved the church because his loves were aligned with Christ's love. Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. When we love Christ, we love the things that Christ loves. Christ loves his church. He died for his church. And Paul loved the, the church. He wanted so badly to, to, to see them and we get a hint now of why he could not yet do that for the church at Rome. Verses 23 and, and 24. He says, but now I no longer have any work to do in these regions. And I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain for I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Now what does he mean here in verse 23 when he says, but, but now I no longer have any work to do in these regions? Well, let's look back to verse 19 and look at the latter part of verse 19. He says there, I have fully Proclaim the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Paul was a frontier missionary. What he did was to, to go into new places where people had never heard of Jesus, proclaim the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, train pastors to give leadership to those churches and then he would move on to a different area and so he says that's what I've done in these regions so my, my work there is done now I'm going on to another place Spain to proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard but I need your help in getting there so look at verse uh, 24 he says, 
I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there. And so when he talks about being assisted by them to, and to be able to go on to Spain, he's talking about the fact that he needs their financial help to be able to do it. There was a president of a prominent American seminary who, who had the philosophy of, of never asking uh, people to, to give money to his school because he believed that God would provide. Now his trustees pointed out to him um, that God does indeed provide. But one of the ways that he often provides is that through communication, God's people are made aware of a need that they have the opportunity to step up and to meet. Well, Paul did this regularly. Paul regularly communicated to the churches, here's a need, here's an opportunity for you to give. And he's doing that here with the church at Rome. He says, I need your assistance to take the gospel where it has not yet been heard. And he's getting ready to tell them about another offering that has been asked for in verses 25 and 26. Let's look at it. He says, right now, I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Now, this is a really beautiful thing because Macedonia and Achaia were churches in Greece that were made up of people from primarily from a Gentile background. And they were taking up this offering for believers from a Jewish background in Jerusalem. Listen, they were, they were a world away geographically, you know, uh, ethnically, racially, all of that from the believers in Jerusalem and they had never even met them, but they loved them. And so these, these, these Grecian churches of, of believers from a Gentile background that had been taking up this offering to minister to believers from a Jewish background in Jerusalem, and the Apostle Paul is getting ready to take it to them. And it's all the more remarkable when you consider the fact that these believers in, 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 in Macedonia especially, they had so many pressing financial needs themselves. Paul tells us about it in 2 Corinthians 8 and verses 1 through 4. He says, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia during a severe trial brought about by affliction. Their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints. This is all the more remarkable when you consider just the ancient animosities between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. But listen, the good news of Jesus had bridged that divide. He brought these people together 
together in Christ. And they love one another. Beautiful thing. Verse 27, he says, yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to them in material needs. One of the things that Paul is doing in Romans is promoting the unity of the church, the unity of believers from a a Jewish background and a Gentile background. And he wants believers from a Gentile background to understand, listen, your savior is Jewish. How could a Christian ever be anti-Semitic or racist? (laughs) It It is completely nonsensical as far as the gospel is concerned. Verses 28 and 29. He says, so when I finish this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. You can just sense the love here that Paul has for these people, for the church of God. He loved the church. He was abandoned to strengthening God's church, as we are to be. Third, he was abandoned to God's will. Abandoned to God's will. Let's look at verse 30. He says, now, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. Several things here. First of all, notice how naturally the Trinity just rolls off of Paul's tongue, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Carter was baptized earlier, he was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why do we do that? Because Jesus commanded us to do that. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christianity has been Trinitarian from the very beginning. Notice also the fact that this is different from the other passages that we've been looking at in this series in that instead of stopping and interceding himself for the church, Paul is stopping here and asking them to intercede for him. And third, notice the language of wrestling, struggling, striving here. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in prayers. This language of wrestling, struggling, striving in prayer, we see at other places in Paul. We see it, for instance, in Colossians 4.12. He says there, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers. So, So in what sense is prayer wrestling, struggling, striving, D.A. Carson puts it this way. 
Carson says the idea is not that prayer becomes intrinsically superior and potentially more effective when it is offered up in a frenzy of sweat. The idea, rather, is that Paul understands real praying to include an element of struggle, discipline, work, spiritual agonizing against the dark powers of evil. Second Corinthians 10 and verses three and four says, for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. And certainly one of those weapons that we are to wield is prayer, intercessory prayer. I want us to turn to Ephesians 6. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Now, this is the great text on spiritual warfare, the armor of God. But when we look at this text, a lot of times we make a mistake in that we stop talking about the armor, we stop, stop talking about the weaponry in verse 17. And the passage doesn't end there. We need to go through verse 19. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. He says, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And there, a lot of times we stop but that's not where Paul stops. We're, we're forgetting the last bit of the weaponry here. Verse 18, pray. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me whenever I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul is saying to us here that we are involved in the spiritual warfare, that we need every bit of the armor of God, that the weapons of our warfare are not conventional, they're not of the flesh, and, and one of the essential weapons is prayer. Prayer is part of spiritual warfare. 
It, it, is, it is hard for us to, to reprogram our minds as, as Western believers because the air that we breathe in the West is just so rationalistic and materialistic. We're so wired to do life just by what we see around us. But Paul is saying here that there's a whole realm that we do not see, that we're engaged in spiritual warfare in this unseen realm. In the 1999 film, The Matrix, Keanu Reeves plays the role of Thomas, a computer programmer and sometimes hacker, who is made aware that there's this whole realm that he has not seen, the matrix, and that people are being, uh, that machines are uh, taking over. And so he's given the invitation to be a part of helping people be, be liberated from this encroaching bondage. He's given a new name, Neo, a new love and ally. Trinity, and, and given this mission of liberation. That's Hollywood. But what I'm about to say is not Hollywood. This is real. This is the Bible. When God saves us, he frees us from bondage to these cosmic powers of darkness he sets us free, and he gives us a mission to help others be set free. And we have a partner and ally in Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we do that. And one of the tools that he gives us for that is to pray for people. Intercessory prayer. That's what Paul is asking for here. And in verses 31 and 32, he gives them three specific things to pray for. Let's look at them. He says, beginning in verse 31, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. Now, here's what's fascinating. All three of these prayers are answered. But the first one and the third one are answered in a way that Paul could not possibly have foreseen when he asked them to pray, pray this. And we'll talk about how. But this tells us something very important about prayer. Suppose God just sort of mechanically answered every prayer that we prayed in like rote fashion. First of all, we would be in trouble. <laughs> because we pray with imperfect knowledge. We don't know the future. 
We sung it earlier. God knows the future. He knows it perfectly and he loves us perfectly. And he knows what's best for his glory and for our good. So if he answered mechanically everything that we said, uh, that would be trouble for us. Because there are times when God knows that it's best to say no or wait for our own good and for his glory. His purposes are higher. His understanding is greater. Okay, so first of all, that would be trouble for us if God answered in that way. Second, we would begin to treat prayer and to treat God mechanically. We would begin to treat prayer as something uh, like a magic act. We would begin to view God as Santa for grown-ups instead of the living God in whom we have been brought into relationship. The God who loves you as a father loves his children, except for God is the perfect father that no human father could ever be and who knows exactly what you need even before you ask it, but he commands us to ask. But here's the third thing. When we ask, Ephesians 3.20 says that he is able to do even beyond, beyond, exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or imagine. And so it is here in Paul's case. And we're going to see how. The second request is that the offering that has been made will be acceptable to the saints in Jerusalem, that it will promote the unity of the church. It's every indication that that, that that happened. But what about the first and the third? They both happened. But they happened in a way that Paul could never have envisioned. He says, first of all, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. He knows that when he goes to Jerusalem that his life is going to be in danger. Well, Paul, God does rescue him. God does spare his life in Jerusalem. But God spares his life in Jerusalem through arrest. Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. His life is actually rescued and spared through that arrest, there was a mob that had formed. He was going to be torn limb from limb. It was actually his arrest that God used to preserve his life. But here's what else happened through that. Through that arrest, Paul was able to proclaim the good news to far more people in Jerusalem than he could have in, in, in any other way. The third request is that he would be able to come to visit them in Rome, and he was able to visit them in Rome. But again, very different than what he imagined. After his arrest in Jerusalem, he is sent to Caesarea for two years, but it is there in Caesarea that Paul is able to bear witness before governors and kings, people like Felix and King Agrippa and many, many others. And then he is sent to Rome as a prisoner. 
where he not only gets to minister to this church, which was his prayer, but far, far beyond that. Because as a prisoner under Caesar's, um, Caesar's purview, Paul was brought into contact with the entire apparatus of the Roman government. And so it was soldiers, it, were, it was high-placed officials that were hearing the gospel in Rome to the point that at the end of the book of Philippians, which he writes from Rome, Paul is going to say at the end of Philippians 4, all the saints send you greetings, especially those of Caesar's household. The gospel has made its way right into the center of the belly of the beast. Caesar's very court in Rome has now been penetrated by the gospel. And so God answers, but he answers in a way that is far, far beyond anything that Paul could possibly have conceived. It came through a lot of suffering and Paul wouldn't have wanted it any other way because he was abandoned to God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for surrender to you. Lord, the, the bottom line of our every prayer is that Christ be glorified and that your will be done. Even if that involves suffering. And Lord, we follow one who suffered for us more than we can imagine, who loved us and gave himself for us. As we continue to, to pray right now, nobody loves you like Jesus. Nobody's done for you what Jesus has done. He went and suffered on a cross that you could be set free. He was subjected to a mock trial, bound, literally nailed to a cross so that you could be set free. He is risen from the dead that you might have eternal life. There's forgiveness. There's new life. There's a new beginning in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. How do we respond to that? Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. To repent means to turn. You've been going one way, trying to do it your way apart from God. Turn, do a 180, stop running from him and begin running toward him and believe, trust. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. Rest in his finished work on your behalf and what he's done for you on the cross and dying for your sins and his resurrection and rely completely, rest totally in what Christ has done on your behalf and ask him to come into your life and take control to be your savior, your Lord, your king. Christians, are you abandoned to God? Are you fully surrendered 
to him? Or are there areas of your life that you are withholding from him? The path to fullness and life and joy is in surrender to him, abandonment to him. Yield to him today. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would work that very thing in our hearts today. For the glory of the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.